Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, I'm Julie Baker. I'm Vice President of Operations for Hilton for the UK and Ireland. And I'd like to welcome you to the Inspiring Leadership Show and to our host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Thank you very much indeed, Julie. And you were recommended as an inspiring leader, so you don't need to tell us you are. I know you are. And uh, of course, I've seen you on television. You've become famous. And it's, it's so lovely to have someone with the humanity and the humility that you have. And you do come across beautifully. Um, sharing stories about what's been going on in the hospitality industry. It's been a very, it's been a very tough time, but we're starting to emerge from it. Um, there's obviously going to be lots of bumps in the road along the way, but it's so nice having someone like you sharing that. So welcome, great having you. Can you tell us first about your current role, which sounds so very interesting, and then we can go back into early life. So tell us about your current role. Certainly. I've, I've got the best job in the world. So um, our founder, Conrad Hilton's mission was to fill the earth with the light and warmth of hospitality. And that's exactly what um, I do with our thousands of wonderful team members across over 50 hotels and, and eight brands in the UK and Ireland. Um, so we are in a very exciting period at the moment because our hotels opened for leisure guests last week. So we've been very busy bringing our team members back off furlough, reboarding them and getting them back to doing what they joined the hospitality industry for, which is about people serving people. So it's a very exciting time. Yeah, no, well done, Julia. I, I, it's particularly in the role you're in, it's, it's, uh, it's you're constantly on trying to keep the wheels turning, getting the, the best staff you can, because it's all about people. It's mm -hmm. all about people with people and, and giving people great a great experience. But the, the woman you and the leader you are today, to understand really who you are, let's take you right back to your upbringing. Who was it that sort of shaped you on your journey, your life journey? What experiences have you had that have given you your foundational values that, that matter to you and why you've connected so much with Conrad's calling and his vision for great hospitality? I think if I go back to when I was at school, um, probably three teachers that stand out in my mind as having had an impact on me were when I was at middle school. And just to give you the background on that, I moved from a school system which had primary and secondary school into one which was lower, middle and upper. And what that meant is I was joining the middle school a year after everybody else joined. So the friendship groups were already formed. I was um, 11 years old. I um, was very, very tall and not really terribly comfortable in my own skin. And I think there were three teachers that recognised something in me, which, um, um, you know, kind of um, built on my strength, if you like. So the first one was my art teacher. He was a guy by the name of Mr. Branson. Uh, not only was he our art teacher, but he was also our housemaster. And he decided to use my height uh, as an advantage. So put me in the house netball team as, as goalkeeper. And I was pretty scary uh, as a goalkeeper. 
The second one was um, we had a lovely teacher called Miss Perkins, and she was, you know, typically like a Miss Marple type character, twin set and pearls. Um, she looked about 80, but probably wasn't. And she was my speech and drama teacher. And um, she was absolutely fabulous. I loved doing drama. And um, for her group of prodigies, she used to have us round for afternoon tea to kind of celebrate the end of the year. So she was fabulous. And then finally, I had a maths teacher called Mr. Corden, who was an absolutely fabulous math maths teacher. He used to explain concepts through stories. Um, so I've always been inspired by people telling stories. I find it really, really engaging. So it's probably the first time I heard people using stories to, you know, to, to, to get complex concepts over. Uh, but he also ran the chess club and he found out that I could play chess. So he invited me along and um, he formed a girls team um, of chess players. And I started at board five and went up to board two. But actually what I remember most about that time was um, the driving to and from the events. So he would drive the girls around to the events. We'd go and play often boys um, at chess, but we would have such a scream in the car telling jokes. And I think for me, you know, the, the power of humor is something that's always stood by me. And, um, you know, that was probably when it first surfaced, uh, you know, how, how attractive humor is. Just with that, yeah, we, we often find when people have reviewed the different, you're one of 160 leaders who've been on this podcast, it's the, the top 2% in the world of podcasts, and, and it goes out to about 180,000 people in 55 countries. So you've got a message which is going to be listened to by a lot of people. And one of the people who reviewed the different people who've been on said three things stand out, and, and, and that's why you're on the series, humanity, humility, and humor. And I think humor is really important. There's some surveys done recently that it actually increases employee engagement by about 20% for people who work for someone who has a nice sense of fun and humor, not, not to, to, to be at other people's expenses so they're, they're, they're uh, ridiculed, but actually can laugh at themselves or the situation. And, and I do relate to that, Julie, because with my time in the military, we'd often have some pretty grim times and, and there'd always be some, some rather dry humor or black humor, which people would bring to a difficult situation. But yeah, that, fascinating that. And then as well as those teachers who shaped you, um, any, any sort of situations in your family? I think I certainly remember grandma was quite special, but any, any people who've given you the, the qualities that you have today or how you overcome challenges? Yes, certainly. So um, my mum was a good role model. My gran granny was as well. I'll tell you about her in a minute, but my mum was a good role model. Um, my mum had me at a very young age and um, that my parents divorced when I was quite young. So I was about six. So we've always been very, very close, but I was always really inspired by my mum because I thought she had really cool careers. So she left school and trained to be a hairdresser. And then um, she became a DJ on an RAF radio station. And she actually um, broadcast under the pseudonym Tracy Lee. And um, she's got uh, this article of where she was featured in a Sunday paper because she was one of the only female DJs around. And she's got this fantastic autograph book filled of pop stars and singers from, really? from the 60s. And wow. um, which unfortunately when I was seven thought would be really cool to color in, which, um, which is a bit of a shame. But no, I was so I was inspired by her. And um, she was always a working mum. And, um, you know, for me, 
she always just said to me, you know, do the best you can. Um, I can't ask anything more than that. And I think that's that's a really good lesson in life as well, because, you know, you put enough pressure on yourself. You don't need somebody else putting it on you as well. But my yeah. granny, yep, sorry, granny, just to finish off her. So she was fabulous because she was just the salt of the earth and how all grannies should be. So down on her hands and knees, crawling around with the children. And, you know, her goal was to make her grandchildren happy. So, yeah, she was fabulous. Yeah, she sounded like she was very special. Eh? You described her as being very selfless yeah. that, that she'd, she'd give for others. But your only wish for her, I seem to remember, was that she'd actually be kinder to herself and believe in herself more. Was that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, she, she didn't have um, the confidence at all and um, would berate herself a little as well. But she was, as I say, salt of the earth, um, just full of love. Yeah. And, and, and of all the different jobs you've had, do you want to just very quickly just list, you know, in, in a minute or so, the different jobs you've had, who would you pick out from that time that's, that's been quite inspiring to you or quite, quite a mentor to you? Yeah, so um, I graduated from university having done management studies in French and really enjoyed the marketing modules, so went into marketing. So my career started at Unilever in marketing. Um, I did a variety of roles in marketing before I became marketing director of the UK and Ireland, um, spent some time in sales um, and some time in a global role as well. Um, after um, being marketing director for a few years, I was then invited to uh, become general manager for the UK and Ireland for our coffee business, which was Dow Egbert's Coffee, uh, then the UK, Ireland and Poland. And then I moved to the Netherlands and ran the business over there, which was the jewel in the crown. Um, and I was the first woman and the first non-Dutch um, to run that business in, in 250 years. Wow. Uh, so hell of a, hell of a, um, uh, yeah, hell of a, an accolade, actually. I was very humbled to be offered the opportunity. Um, after that, I took a career break and then I went to work for Capita in professional services, where I was managing director for three businesses in the HR outsourcing space. And then for the last three and a half years, I've been in my favorite job um, ever, which is working for Hilton as yeah. as a VP of Ops. It's a fabulous job. It really kind of sits well with my values and yeah, it's, it's a wonderful organization. And, and of, uh, if you were to pick out three of the values that are very important to you, and we can talk about yeah. this later, but three of the values that really connect you with Hilton, what would you pick? Um, I think integrity is really important, so doing the right thing. So one of the things I learned in one of the roles I had was um, I never, I always took culture for granted. I never realised how important it was until it went wrong. Mm. So there was one organisation which I worked for which changed ownership, changed um, management team, etc. And the culture changed. And um, so for me, integrity, morality, very important. And when the culture doesn't fit with that, you kind of lose your true north. Um, so integrity, really important to me. I think, you know, the, the thing I love about Hilton and hospitality is the fact that um, people are the centre of everything we do. We, we, I mean, our CEO is a very inspiring leader, Chris Nassetta, who talks about the fact that, you know, we're a business of people serving people. You know, if we can create engaged, motivated team members they will deliver a fantastic guest experience. And, and hospitality is all about a fantastic uh, guest experience. And yeah. he talks about those two things. If you look after them, the revenue will come in. So that just, it kind of sits yeah. well with me. 
No, that, that's great. And, and we'll go on to talk about the, the different values of what make inspired leaders, but MQ, as you talked about, moral quotient, the integrity is a key one. So thank you, we've, we've covered that one already. So let's just look at, as you were uh, growing up and, and throughout your career, what would be a moment that you were terribly proud about or you're very pleased about? And what would be one of the sort of darkest moments that you learned something from in both cases? Yeah, so I think um, I think being a parent, your proudest moments inevitably are when your, your children do things, they smile for the first time, walk for the first time, you know, do well in an exam, overcome an obstacle of their own. So um, without doubt, uh, the proudest moments you have are when you see your, your kids do, do things they want to do and do well at it. Um, I, I think the proudest moment in my career would probably have to be the last year. It was um, it was such um, um, an unusual experience for everyone. This this pandemic and the hospitality industry in particular was was hit very hard indeed. Um, but I'm proud of of the last year because of the way we all came together as a team and um, and navigated our way through this. I, I often use the analogy that it was like building airplanes in the sky. Um, in that there were no manuals or handbooks or anything on, on how to navigate through a pandemic. And so you were kind of working it out as you went along. Um, but I think, you know, a few things kind of stand by me. Um, one is the fact that communication in this time is absolutely, uh, you know, vital, keeping people updated, um, giving people hope. So when we went into lockdown at the beginning, we had to close all of our hotels, bar a few, which stayed open for key workers, but rest were closed. We put team members on furlough. So it's how do you give people hope in, in that situation when you've no idea how long you're going to be locked down for? You're no, you've no idea what the impact of this awful pandemic is going to be. And so what we did was prepared for the future. We, one day these hotels will open again. So what can we do? Um, to prepare for the future. So we did things like um, making sure that when we were at the, ready to bring our team members back, we were reboarding them into the business again, as if they were joining a company for the first time. Um, what would it take to make sure our guests would feel reassured when they came back? You know, how would we give them that warm welcome, that, that kind of differentiated experience that, that you, you get from a Hilton hotel? And how do we overcome their, their feelings of anxiety when they're stepping into a hotel again? So, you know, what extra cleaning can you do? What can you do to reassure them? We've got a, an initiative called Clean Stay, which um, is, is, is our um, process for making sure um, guests feel happy. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud mm, of that. And I'm mm. proud of how we work together as a team. And yeah. it was good. Great. Fantastic. And then let's imagine you go back and meet the young Julie Baker, um, age, say, 16 or 18. All the things you've learned in all the different jobs that you've done, and particularly going through the pandemic and learning a lot about yourself, what bit of advice would you give to yourself, knowing what you know now? I mean, I, I would tell myself not to be too intense and uh, work better with my peers and stop trying too hard, you know, over trying. What, what bit of advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think when I look back over the, my whole career, it's to make sure you do something that you enjoy. And um, because work doesn't feel like work when you're enjoying it. And I've seen, you know, people that have been um, made redundant from roles, for example, and moved to new roles. And there's a temptation to take the first thing that comes along. But if you take your time, 
and do the thing you really want to do, then you'll be happy and you save time in the long term. And, you know, there's three times in, in my life where I have um, applied for roles or had in my head, there is something I really want to do. Um, advised maybe by headhunters that, that that wouldn't be possible. Um, but I would always say to people, go for it. If you think you can do something, go for it. Take advice, take the challenge, listen, but absolutely don't be put off and go for the right thing and hold out for the right thing. Uh, that's, that's great advice. And I, I really agree with that. Um, I, I love the work I do you know, interviewing leaders like yourself, but also the coaching of teams and individuals, particularly teams. I, I love doing work with uh, teams. And, and as we mentioned, I spoke at the Hilton conference, which was held in Vienna a few years ago. I love that. Uh, just to sort of motivate other people of, of what I've learned to pass it on. And, and so it sounds like you found in this role, well, maybe there's been occasions where you've done a, a role which isn't perfectly you. This one does, just seeing you on television, you just the energy and the enthusiasm you bring. Uh, congratulations on that. We're going to go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. We've already talked about MQ Moral Quotient um, and, and your values and how aligned they are to the integrity of the Hilton Hotels uh, chain. And then what about PQ, which is next? Sort of what gives your life meaning and purpose? Why you do what you do? And, and, and what have you done when you found yourself off purpose and you had to bring yourself back onto what gives your life purpose? So I think it helps working in an industry where there is a purpose there. Um, so I've always had a passion for people. I mean, um, you know, one of the reasons I went into marketing when I first left university is that uh, there were two modules in university that I particularly enjoyed. One was psychology and one was marketing. So I've always been interested in, you know, why people behave in certain ways, how you can influence people. Um, you know, marketing was obviously more about how do you persuade people um, to buy your product or how do you meet an untapped need. But equally, I, I, I'm always interested in the kind of managerial research, what makes great leaders, etc., so um, when you come and work in hospitality and, and it's a very people centric organization and it's all about making sure our guests have an unforgettable experience, that sits very well with me because I really enjoy and thrive on, on, on that kind of environment. Um, so that's the other thing as well is I think that, you know, to go back to our founder, he said that, you know, there's nothing that can't be sold over a, um, a meeting and a coffee. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you're creating or your team members are creating the environment for people to connect and have memories, whether it's a business meeting or whether it's a, a social event, is, it just fits really well with, um, with, with my kind of purpose. Yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's a lovely to have that calling, a vocation. Yes. As you say, it's, 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 it really, people who I know, leaders who are working in mission-driven organizations, it's so easy to motivate people to that, but it's when, you know, what's, what's, your, what's your purpose? Oh, to pay off the mortgage? Well, come on, really, you know? That's hardly gonna excite people. And then from, from PQ, the third one around is health quotient. Um, okay. uh, your, your mental and your physical health and well-being. What do you do? to keep yourself physically and mentally healthy? Because of course, uh, we discussed this before, you and I, that particularly with uh, all that people have gone through when they're worried about the future of the industry they're in, like hospitality, their jobs, um, being on furlough, like their mental health has, has been under a lot of pressure. So what have you done personally to look after your physical and mental health? And then I'm interested in, in how that can spin off to the people you lead. 
Yeah, so I think um, the things I like doing are running or swimming because you get that headspace to kind of um, either think about things or put things out of your mind. Um, um, and like most people, I occasionally set myself um, a challenge. So last year I did my first half marathon. I did my first open water swim. So, yeah. And Great, then well done. <laughs> the other thing, I never do an open water swim again. But I know, uh, it's filthy. I, I, I did a triathlon. Oh, revolting. <laughs> <laughs> no anyway I'm glad I've done it but that's kind yeah, of yeah. go to the pool done. next time pools are better yeah <laughs> um so yeah the other thing of course is you know spending time with your family and friends that you know that's a great release isn't it and that's the thing I think that probably tested us most last year yeah, and you know we've, we've definitely adapted uh, our meetings to having zoom calls like this but thank goodness for zoom for keeping in contact with with family and friends as well I mean I don't know a person that didn't have a regular quiz um, with their family and friends. One of my neighbours ran a Pilates class for us by Zoom. One of my team members ran a boot camp every Friday morning. Um, so I think the key thing is about connecting. I mean, the, 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 I've, I've been close to people who have suffered with mental health issues, both in the workplace and, you know, um, friends and family. Um, and the thing that you... Um, the thing I take away from it is that the, the, the power of the, the connection and the talking about it and being open about it and surfacing those issues, making it everyday conversation is the thing that normalizes it, destigmatizes it and gets people to actually uh, seek out help. And I think um, that's the most important thing it's, it's regularly checking in with people to see how they are doing uh, as an individual. And as I say, I think this pandemic made us realize that more than than ever because people were put into very you know difficult situations and um you know we've got some great mental health tools at, at work everything from employee assistance program to um mental health awareness weeks things like that so yeah, yeah that, that's what we do great no i'm delighted to hear about that Gillian. and then on to something which is dear to your heart emotional and social intelligence eq which is at the heart of some of the most inspiring men and women I know, is they have high levels of that. So what have you done to develop your emotional and social intelligence building, you know, rapport building, listening to people, summarizing what they've said, intuitively picking up that when they say, I'm fine, Julie, you go, I'm not picking up that you're fine. What's really happening? Oh, well, you know, so-and-so's happened. Well, what have you done to build that, that skill? Because it, it's one that, it's like a language. We've got to keep working on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, over the years, you, you learn through trial and error. Um, um, there is a lovely, I don't know whether you've read To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper. I have, I have, I love it. I only read that about eight years ago, but um, there was some, a, a quote in there, which I hope I don't get wrong, which um, I think is a good leadership um, learning, which is never judge someone to be brought in their shoes. Yeah. And the temptation, um, certainly in my early career, the temptation, everything looks like, you know, that person has done this wrong or that person is at fault here. And you quickly learn um, how not to jump to conclusions, how to kind of step back and think, although it looks like that, um, you know, spend the time in finding out what really happened. And the, the other thing you learn over time, which I love about that quote, is the fact that people don't deliberately, you know, do things wrong or behave in a way that, that you're not expecting. So um, you learn over time to really probe um, and understand what, what has caused that person to 
to feel that um, that was the only way to behave, for example. So I think I think that. Sorry, you were going to say. No, no, I, I just you, you've triggered in me. Um, I, I love to killing kill a mockingbird, and this everybody you meet has something to teach you if only you listen to them. Uh, and I, I think one of the uh, books I've enjoyed recent, reading recently, which I commend to you, is called uh, "Life Is in the Transitions." And it's a series of interviews and, uh, that, that this person has done to find out people's life stories. And I'm sure you use it, Julie, because you're very good with people. But I always make a point of finding out people's stories and, and what, a bit like we've done at the beginning, a bit like what shaped your life. Because you can't hope to understand anybody until you've begun to hear something of their life story. And, and I know time and again, even as I'm almost 60 now, I'm going, how many times do I have to relearn this one? That do not judge that person. You didn't know what yeah. they've just been through. And now they've told you that so-and-so's just died or they've, they've got terminal cancer or something like that. You go, oh my goodness, yeah. how clumsy of me. You know, why didn't I find that out? But we don't, we go transaction, do, 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 do. And you, you don't even know the person you're transacting with. What, what's your thoughts? No, I, I agree with you. And you, you learn over time as well. I mean, you talked about listening. Um, I remember a course years ago that um, got you to listen to the very last drop. So one of the things I've learned over time is that when you're passionate about something, you tend to have lots of ideas. So you're eager to get those ideas out because you're excited. Um, but what that does is it means other people don't contribute. And, um, and actually, you know, if you step back and listen, you'll often find the idea will come out anyway. Um, so you do learn to step back and listen, listen to the last drop. Um, and I, I, I don't know if it's just something that comes with age and, 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 and with experience, but um, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a learning for me. And, and just building on what you said there, I think if you make people feel valued, if you stop to ask them how they're doing, how their children are, you know, how was their holiday? They, 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 they feel valued and they feel so, um, uh, yeah, touched by the fact that you've remembered their dog's name or, you know, you remembered they were on holiday. You know? Yeah, uh, it, it's really important and particularly in the hospitality industry. I've, I've been to some lovely hotels where they really get to know you mm. and, and find out all about you. And, and then when you find someone comes over and checks with you and they've perhaps done a bit of research about you and, you go, that's really special. And, and, and you never forget it. Like, um, you know, cramming to read a brief about someone, then putting it away and coming over and just asking about, are you a Liverpool football fan? You are, so, so, so <laughs> am I. But of course you can't pretend that you're a, a fan of the same club as everybody. You have to be authentic whether you are. Um, now from- a lovely story there, there Jonathan. Like, so um, a lovely story there about a team member who, um, she um, it was in one of our hotels down in Brighton and she was um, she was one of our F&B assistants, food and beverage assistants. And she had seen this. This guy was there on business um, doing project work and he stayed with us for weeks. And she noticed that one evening he was looking um, a bit down. Um, so she went over to him and um, sat down with him and had a coffee with him and um, listened to his story. And he was fed up with being away from home so frequently and uh, missing his family and um, she went away and came back and gave him a bar of chocolate and she said there chocolate solves everything and then he wrote me a lovely letter because he said a few weeks later he saw the same thing happen she was feeling a bit down and he went to her <laughs> bar of chocolate but it's just you hear lovely stories like that all the time uh, it's very nice and I remember staying at one of your Hilton hotels before I spoke at the conference and 
Lee and I made a point of getting to know each member of staff and hearing their story. Uh, and it completely changed our stay at the hotel because anyway, we were interested. They didn't know we were almost like mystery guests. We, we, we were paying our own way. We, we weren't there for free. Um, but it, it gave us such a lovely story. So when we, we, we gave the presentation, we had pitched photos of the different people and told their story. And you could see the people in the audience just really felt heard and understood and connected on a personal level. It's lovely what what you do, I I do admire it. And that takes me on nicely to the person who was away from home, which the other area is, we used to look at IQ, but I think IQ in in hospitality and in many areas is not as important as CQ, cultural intelligence quotient. So that ability to recognize people with different cultures, different backgrounds, and, and to be able to adapt to different cultures. And of course, that's the essence of diversity, equality, and inclusion, which is so important to the work you do. So what, what would you say how you've developed your cultural intelligence question and your ability to recognize lots of people different from you? Yeah, I think, um, I think a couple of ways. So the, firstly, um, I've worked in global roles. So where you, and I've lived in other countries. So um, my, um, my father was in the Air Force. So um, I lived in Germany as a child. Um, I studied French, so I lived in France for, for a year. Um, and of course, I worked in the Netherlands and um, worked with uh, people from all different nationalities. And um, and you do start to learn the cultural differences, and you, you recognise um, that yeah, you know, something that might irritate you is, is something that's that's cultural. And then you have to take a step back and, and realise that you know, whilst um, you know one nationality being direct, you might find that feel affronted by it. It's actually, they think they're being really clear and they think we're, um, I mean, I remember when I worked in the Netherlands, a uh, funny story there, because Brits, we, well, Americans like to sugarcoat things. Brits, um, we're told we never tell, uh, we're never clear about things. And the Dutch are always um, identified as being very direct. So I worked in the Netherlands and um, we, were, had, uh, we had a meeting where a team were presenting to me and I thought, oh God, this presentation is awful, but I, I don't want to undermine this person in, in public. So at the end, I just politely said, I think, I think you might want to take another look at that. And there was absolutely zero reaction. And I turned around to my colleague next to me and said, um, what do you think I meant by that? And he said, well, he thinks, he'll think you meant he might want to take a look at that. So he can if he wants to. And I said, well, what should I have said? He said, you should have said, that was awful. Can you do that again? <laughs> yes, it's, it, you remind me with the, the, the difference between the Dutch, the Americans and the Brits, and, and everybody's very different, of course. Uh, and particularly the, the, uh, with you studying France, uh, and I yeah. love France dearly and, and Italy, and, and just how different uh, everybody is, and timekeeping and things like that. But but I was enjoying reading No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, which is a good read. But in it, they did a lot of work on culture in different parts. And they talked about in the cultural intelligence uh, assessments they did, the Dutch were known for being particularly just straight. And I've had a couple of people, even one tech company board that I know, and they, they had a Dutch advisor. They actually got rid of him because he was too blunt and too rude. They couldn't cope with it. But actually he was just telling them the truth. They just didn't like hearing it. And, and um, so I think understanding power difference and, and, and various different things between cultures is a real skill. And I, I think particularly in, in your industry more than it, gosh, you, you have 
you know, what the coalition of the willing of all these different nationalities, different nations, and you can't. One size isn't fit uh, suits all, fits all. And this idea of treat your neighbor as you'd like to be treated yourself. Well, actually, that doesn't really work. Treat your neighbor as they'd like to be treated, not as you'd like to be treated. And I think people get really caught up in that and get it so badly wrong. So from- I think building on that, you were talking about the whole diversity piece. I mean, it's, um, you know, for me, the more diverse a team are working together, the better ideas you get. So you get, you want that person that's got an opinion completely different mm. to yours because you want to challenge your way of thinking and you only get that when you've got people with different experiences different backgrounds different cultures etc you're, you're so right Julie. otherwise you get what one person's called an echo chamber or even worse an ego chamber where it's just mm -hmm. the, the the hippo the highest paid person's opinion everybody's reinforcing her or him with uh, what they want to hear rather than yeah. telling them the uncomfortable truth and that's why 360 i find so very useful for a leader that actually they get the undiluted feedback on what they're doing well, and they could do leverage that, what they could make even better situations, bring out the best, the worst. And if there was one behavior they should work on, which would it be? Um, which takes us on to resilience, RQ, resilience quotient, coping with adversity, setbacks, and disappointments. What have you learned about resilience and coping with adversity and a tip that you'd pass on to people? Yeah, I think, I think the big, this is a couple of things. I'll tell you a story um, and um, I'll tell you a learning. So the learning, first of all, is I think for me, um, if I get up and it's a bad day, the best thing for me to do, get up, have a shower, get dressed, put your makeup on, do your hair and put a smile on your face. And if you can approach each day and reframe a problem into an opportunity. My husband always talks about challenges and opportunities. So when I say to him, oh, I've got a key issue with this, he always says, well, what's the opportunity in that? Um, and he has to be a really good mentor as well. I uh, yeah. give, him, um, give him credit for that. So, um, so I think it's important um, that you maintain a positive mindset and that, that you always look at the, the art of the possible. Um, there's a, a lovely quote, which I use quite frequently by um, an American activist called um, Pearl S. Buck. And she used to say, everything is possible until it's proved impossible. Even the impossible is only so as of now. And that, you know, that for me is all about the, 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 the hope and the positivity uh, going forwards and, and reframing things into, into opportunities. It's an issue, yeah, but how, how do we resolve this? How do we get an opportunity? And I think the other thing is when I when I think about resilience, probably the most challenging time I had in my career was actually when I went to the Netherlands. So I, I mentioned earlier that when the culture of an organization changes, it can really affect, you know, if it, if it jars with your moral compass, it can really affect you. And um, I saw a really good um, coach at that time when I was working there. And um, she gave me, again, a phrase that stood by me, which is you can't control the environment, but you can control how you feel. And the second thing she said was, where do you get your grounding from? And um, we, I said, what do you mean? Um, who, where, where are you where you feel comfortable and at your most relaxed and best? And, and, and at this particular time, it was with my family. And why? Well, because I... I feel loved and supported by them and I feel loving and supportive to them. And she then encouraged me and said, 
when you're in a difficult situation, just remember that you can't control that environment, but think back to what grounds you, know what's important, and that can control you and make you feel happy. So that's two bits of advice for resilience. The last one, a bit more of an extreme one. But No, I, I love them both. And, and particularly that quote, it, it really strikes home for me. And I, I've uh, found that the Stoic philosophy has helped me through many a tough moment and also helped many of the clients that I coach. And, and I do like what your coach told you that, you know, you can control your thoughts and your actions, but you can't control the environment and the situation you're in. Control the controllables mm -hmm. is really the essence of what she was advising you, which 2000 years ago was sound and is still sound today. It's a it's a truism. Um, now, uh, the next one is brand quotient, brand reputation, image and impact. And for a lady versed in marketing and being a marketing director, um, what, what is your um, uh, you know, what have you learned about your own personal brand and from 360 and how have you been sort of working on personal brand? I think I think my personal brand. So I think if you ask people what they said about me, they'd say um, she's really positive. She's really passionate. She cares for people. And, you know, she she cares about how the team does. Um, and I think when you first start out, when I look back in my career and think about at the beginning, it was very much more about, you know, um, what, what I was good at. You know, I wanted it to be about my achievements. And I think the thing you learn the longer you work is actually you don't do anything on your own. You do it as a team. And when you're comfortable with that, it's not then about you getting the limelight it's about your team getting the lime, limelight and feeling proud for them when when they achieve so that's I think that's that's what I've tried to um over the years develop in that it's it's not about me it's about us yeah I love that not me it's us yeah that's great and then the last one around there before we go to talk about executive teams your favorite book and your final two minute top tip is um legacy uh, leaving things better than you found it this is the idea of stewardship and you know you've done a number of different uh, key roles and now you have this great uh, stewardship and responsibility of leaving things better than you found it um what's your tip about legacy oh that's such a hard one isn't it it's um I, yeah it's a really hard question I, I i'm an eternal optimist so i would like to think that you know, when I leave this world, that people will look back and say, Julie Baker was a really positive person. She always believed in the art of the possible. And we had a good laugh about trying to get there. And, you know, she, you know, she made us laugh. Um, um, that doesn't sound very good, does it? Um, no, 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 but it's, it's interesting you say this one because you, you say you've got children. What, what sort of age children? Oh, they've grown up, 18 and 20. Okay, yeah. So, so Lee and I have got 29 to 28, 27, and, or almost 27, and 25. So um, it, it's interesting with children, but when you take them back to, not when they're 18 and 20, but when they were down to little ones, often there would be situations where your children would say to you, Mummy, I can't do that. Mm. Oh, we now get this with with colleagues who go I can't do that Julie and the, that's what's known as psychologically and you love your psychology an untrue limiting assumption lived as if it's true and I don't mean to come across Nancy Klein but her work on the thinking environment I'm trained by Nancy she's one of my great mentors and, and I find 
teaching organizations to have the positive alternative assumption. Okay, and if you could do it, how would you do it? So the little mouse in the brain goes running around going, there is a possibility, it must be in there somewhere. Yeah, and then yeah. they go, and the child goes within about 30 seconds, they go, mommy, I'll do it this way. And you yeah. go, a minute ago, they were talking about they couldn't do it. Now they found it. Do you not find that an interesting aspect? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't like hearing no as an answer and I don't like hearing um, that things aren't possible. So I'd like to think that, that that would be my legacy, that she found a way through and, yeah. and we had good fun trying. Yeah, no, that's, that, that sounds great. Okay, we're, we're almost, at, almost at the end, Julie. Um, but these, this is brilliant. I'm really enjoying this. Thank you. And, and stay on when we finish recording. Uh, executive teams. Um, mm. You've been with a lot of different executive teams. What are your top tips for creating high-performing teams? And how do you deal with toxic teams? Or it could be toxic individuals which make the team go toxic. So what, what's your advice on those two? Yeah, so I, when I when I join a new team, so having joined new companies before, what I try and do is is get um, get us aligned on how we want to operate as a team. So what's kind of our charter for working together? What are we going to do? And and one of the key things I, I always um, say is that we can challenge each other as much as we like in this room, and we can have different opinions. But when we go out of this room, if we've agreed on something. Um, then I think it's really important that we present a united front. We can challenge each other back in the uh, in the meeting room again, but you know, in terms of especially when you're imparting things to to people in your team, it's important that they get a consistent message. Otherwise, it can be confusing. So true. Um, so I think you know, it's it's with, with new teams as well. It's it's trying to trying to get to know each other as well quite quickly. So you know sharing sharing stories together or you know if you could sum up your uh, personal brand in one word what would it be send a text to three people you know and get them to describe you in a word and then let's talk about it what are your what are people you work with or people whose opinion you you value what are they saying about you so just as a vehicle to get people to talk about what they're like as a person how they like to work so that you can you can start to to work out how you'll work well together I think the other thing with executive teams as well, as I, as I said earlier, is, is, is all around um, openness and transparency with communication. So, you know, don't shy away from giving bad news. Um, you know, you can still be empathetic about it, but, um, you, you know, people can deal with bad news if you're honest with them and then you work out a solution as to how to, to deal with it. In terms of toxic people, um, so two pieces of advice there. If they're on your executive team and you have somebody toxic, you call them out on it privately. Um, and don't be afraid of saying, you know, that 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 behavior is not acceptable or it isn't in line with what we've agreed as the way we want to work. Um, yeah, I think that's 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 probably the best way of, of, of handling it. Um, yeah. Have you, have you ever had... Um what I would describe as the white collar psychopath, the one who, who really is so toxic, you're never going to change him or her. And, and what have you done when you had someone like that? Um, I don't think so, no. I think most, most people, it's just about understanding why they said something they did. And when you call it out, um, they're often they often see that and, and and are apologetic. I don't think so. I can't recall ever having to had to 
to have somebody on my team like that and confront that type of issue now. I'm very, I'm very relieved for you. You, you are in the minority, um, but I'm delighted for you. I think perhaps it might be some of the kind of organizations you've been in and the sector that you're in tends to encourage better uh, human relations rather than somewhere like investment banking where there can be some quite toxic behaviors. Um, and and I, I think picking up your point about finding out why Getting to why is really important, as Simon Sinek talked about in his uh, TED talk. But someone said to me, a very nice one, that always check on these two parameters, intention versus impact. As humans, we're quite hypocritical. We judge ourselves by our intentions and never by our impact. But I'll judge you by your impact on me or others and never by your intention. So uh, it always reminds me to go and ask them their intention. This is what's happened. Help me understand, what was your intention? Because do you realize how this landed? And then the, the nonviolent communications is a very lovely uh, approach, NVC, by uh, Rosenberg, which he, he, he talked, Marshall Rosenberg, he talks about, you know, focus on the fact mm -hmm. uh, of what actually happened, how it made you feel, the consequences mm -hmm. for you, and your request of them. They don't have to take it, but, but it, it's very helpful to deal with conflict. And then mediation is another whole area and I'm going to get my my brothers who's a, a surgeon just finished as a uh, chair of the British Plastic Surgeons he, he went and trained in mediation and I think uh, I, I think it's an extra skill to have because there's a lot more conflict around and to be able to mediate between people who are just not hearing dialogue mm -hmm. of the deaf is, is good. Um, Julie what about um, what about a favorite book that you'd have on leadership or anything to do with leadership which, which would you pick and, and what was it about it you liked? Well, in the pandemic, one of my team members read um, Becoming Michelle Obama, and oh. I read it. So although um, probably not your traditional leadership book, I highly recommend reading it if you haven't read it. It's the first biography I've ever read, um, and I love it. Um, she had this concept of your story is what you own. Um, but there was something in there. Uh, there's loads of lovely stories in there that, that you can take away as kind of um, leadership examples. But um, there's quite a nice one in there. I mean, she obviously talks about um, the discrimination that um, she grew up, the world she grew up in. Um, but she also talks about the fact that when people asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up, she would often be um, um, pleased by their reaction. Um, so if she said she wanted to be a lawyer, which of course she became, she would enjoy the reaction. And she did become a successful lawyer. Um, she went to Harvard, became a successful lawyer. And um, um, Barack Obama turned around to her one day and said, um, be what you want to be, not what you think others expect you to be. And that was one of the turning points for her then abandoning her legal career and moving into the charity world. And I thought, actually, that's, that's a really good piece of advice, isn't it? I mean, how often do, particularly when you've got children, how often do, children, do you want your children to do things that, you know, may make them look good? Whereas actually it's, it comes back to the, the, one of the points I made earlier, which is around do something you enjoy, um, not because you feel you have to. Uh, Julie, that really resonates with me personally. So, um we both had uh, fathers in the forces. So my father was a fleet air arm commander. He was killed when I was uh, three, two and a half. And, and so my mother who always imagined she was gonna be Lady Perks and, and Admiral Sir Paul Lady Perks, and it, she wasn't because he was killed at 33. 
um, she tried to live her life through me. Mm-hmm. So she kept going, when I joined the army, uh, at 80, and she goes, if I yawn, uh, put your hand up, Jonathan. Generals don't yawn. And, and things like, little things that generals didn't do. As if she wanted me to be, no, I stayed in for 20 years, but I only became major. And, and, and it, I, I had a reasonably successful, fascinating mixed career, but it wasn't what I, a bit like the Obama moment, really wanted to do. What I really wanted to do is now what I'm doing now, but I only know after a few steps to this place. But it is interesting that parents have got to be quite careful because our psychological problems are often the unmet needs of parents. So we are now the parents. And in my case, I'm a grandparent now as well. And, and, and we've got to be quite careful of the stuff we lay on the children for our unmet needs. What we wanted to do, you know, wanted to go to Oxford or Cambridge, get them to go to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, got to be quite careful on that one. And I, I gave that book. My daughter's just been 28, Harriet. And uh, she got a first class honours degree from Bristol, which she did in English. And I gave her that book, Becoming Michelle Obama, but because my wife, Lee, had read it and loved it. Mm-hmm. And I'm now going to go and get, because I'm dyslexic, so I, I, I find it quite hard reading books. I can, but it's just very slow. I was once uh, with the Scots Guards, and we, in the days when we had libraries, we were based in Cyprus. And I got a book, Teach Yourself Speed Reading. And it sat beside my bed, and I occasionally flicked through it, but I, I'd always fall asleep. And, and anyway, they, they had a post table in the officer's mess and there was the mail was there and I came in the whole group and laughing and things and I okay what's going on guys and they go Jonathan come and look at this you must look at this and there was a like a little postcard and it was from the librarian dear <laughs> Captain Perks your book teach yourself speed reading is now two months overdue please can you return it your fine is two pound forty whatever it was. And, and they framed it I mean you know he's like so so <laughs> I, I was learning early, but but um, I, I do think I'm going to listen to Becoming Michelle Obama as, a, as an audio book, as, as my next one. I loved Obama's book, his first, because he's doing two. I found that truly inspirational. Um, so we, we're on to the final top tip. And on all I'd ask you now, um, we'll use it for this main part and, and a, a, a separate piece as well. Just once again, introduce yourself, say what you do, and then just share your top tip and why you think it's a quite a practical leadership tip that people should apply. And I'll thank you and we'll end the series. Okay. Hi, I'm Judy Baker. I'm Vice President of Operations for Hilton for the UK and Ireland. My top tip as a leader is to show your vulnerability. Um, don't be afraid um, to have all the answers. Don't be worried about not having all the answers. Um, People respect the fact that you draw on their expertise and um, it's a much more um, conducive, collaborative discussion when you you say you don't know. Yeah, brilliant. Julie, thank you very much indeed. Um, Fascinating story. We could have chatted for much longer. Stay on the line, but thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership Series and for inspiring me and all the people who are listening around the world. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, 
get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.